Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main thermal fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So Brian Penny is my guest on the podcast today. So Brian is a recovered addict, life change strategist, author of his book, Bonus Time, PhD candidate and lecturer. So Brian's Irish Research Council funded PhD focuses on the impact of mindfulness-based interventions on adults who misuse substances in the Trinity Institute of Neuroscience. And yeah, Brian, as I said, I'm, I'm just buzzing. I can't wait to sit down and chat to you and, and start the, the interview or the chat. Uh, so thanks again for coming on and chatting to me today. No, delighted to be here, Megan. I'm really looking forward to this. It's, as I said, it's very different talking about the research and stuff like that. So I'm super excited for today. Okay, so... I kind of want to go back and talk about, you know, what you were like in childhood, in school. And, you know, was the career that you're in now, was that ever in your mind or what did you want to be when you were younger, I suppose? Well, there was there was only one thing I wanted to be when I was younger and I was a footballer. I was obsessed with football, like absolutely obsessed with football. And I was I was a pretty good footballer as well. I, I, I was um, I, I had aspirations to become professional. I was never good enough to become professional, but I had aspirations of that. And I was good. I was quite good. I, I got to a good level, but I got injured then at an early age as well when I was about 14, 15. And I'm still actually carrying um, remnants of that injury. So for me, it was all about football. Like I played football probably six hours a day growing up. It was literally all I did. And in, in hindsight as well, we'd be delving into my story as well. I would imagine that um, it was an escape at the time. I, I would say like sports is a great anti-anxiety medication. Like I'd say I was I was medicating myself to an, to an extent as well. So um, because I was always restless and um, I was always anxious as a kid. So I'd say that was one of the escapes for me, but it was all about football if if, if I had to, to answer your question more directly academia was never on the mark like I was good in school but I came from a very disadvantaged area so what's the way of saying it there wouldn't have been very many educated people in the class like when I went to secondary school which was in a different area I, it, the, the levels went up so I was I, I was I was smart enough in skill, but um, definitely never seen a career in academia. Not even not even close. Or as a writer, like writing was has always been my worst subject. Was really interesting. That was my greatest passion. But um, yeah, it was all football. <laughs> and like you know, kind of what you're saying there. Like, would there have been the role models there? Perhaps not. Like growing up, as to you know, people who had gone on and were scientists or, or academics. You know, maybe that wasn't on your radar because you didn't know anyone who had done it. Yeah, definitely not. And and my mom wouldn't mind me saying this like my, my mom is sort of um liked to through her own experiences she didn't think it was good to be in the spotlight so it's not good to be bad and it's not good to be good it's good to be in the middle so nobody notices you and that's she 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 she's sorry about that now we, we have great chats i get on great my mom now but 
like she sort of was trying to protect us by keeping us in the middle. So she wouldn't have known how to push us in 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 that context. Like I remember she I've since had chats with my mom and she remembers the teacher saying, Oh, because my, my older brother Calvin is super smart. And she said, Would you not push them to go in this area and that area? I mean, mom just didn't know how to do it. Like she left school at Tordain, my dad left school at Tordain, they weren't academic in the slightest. So they'd no way of becoming our role models and I didn't I didn't know anyone that was involved in academia or or any professional environment to be quite honest it was it was as I was saying it was a it was a disadvantaged area probably known as the worst area in Dublin growing up it was in Mulhudert and a lady's well in Blanchardstown it was a really bad area growing up and role models were certainly nothing that they weren't on my radar I have a lot of mentors and role models today some of them are dead thousands of years. Marcus Aurelius will be my greatest mentor, like a lot of philosophers from the past, but I had no access to that information. I had no way of reading it. Well, yeah, and the internet didn't exist back then either. So I, I just hadn't got any role models to direct me into, on, on that path. Yeah, no, and I think even this podcast, uh, you know, hopefully hearing something like this about your story, which we're going to get into now and kind of where you are today, maybe that might spark in someone else who doesn't yeah. know, who doesn't have those role models. But now with the internet and now with stuff like podcasts, maybe this might inspire them. Definitely, definitely. And what, what I always say, and I think I think that's why reading is so important, like the greatest minds that have ever existed on our planet have left their best ideas in books. So the greatest minds and the best ideas have been left in books. So if you don't read, you're literally saying, know to the greatest mentors you could ever have and learn everything that they're about so there's so much access to these days and I would just highly recommend I think reading opens doors that seemingly don't exist like when you start reading and you start building on that knowledge it compounds over time and doors begin to open so all the mentors and role models are out there in, in books like they really are yeah well because you know something I do ask people is you know who even through any or any stage of your career, who was your who were your mentors? So it's interesting that you would kind of view people that you've never even met before, maybe as, yeah. as some of your your greatest mentors. It's an interesting one. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, I, I even I have a lot of principles that that govern my life as well and how I make decisions. And what a principle for me is an actionable step that aligns which are values in life. And one of my guiding principles is what would Marcus do? So if ever I'm uncertain in a certain situation or I don't know what to do and things are stressful situations, I would say, what would Marcus do? So Marcus Aurelius was, he's, he's the guy that died at the start of the film Gladiator, but he was a, a great Roman philosopher, a great Roman thinker, a great leader. And he left his, these amazing books about, um, there were messages for his own life. He didn't want to publish them, but then he got published posthumously, I think that's the right word. And yeah, so I asked myself, what would Marcus do? So he is my guide in everything I do in life. When I'm stuck, what would he do? Or if I have a spiritual problem, I'll say, what will Eckhart Tolle do? So I've <laughs> a lot of these mentors. I've lived in mentors as well, which is great, and academic mentors. So I've been very lucky in, 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 that, um, in that environment as well. I seek mentors out because I think it's very important to learn from people further along the path. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, from the people I've spoke to, that's kind of echoed throughout of, you know, the importance of mentors and, and asking yeah. for help um, because it's not a sign of weakness. It's asking, uh, can you give me advice here? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and do you know what? Advice for anyone out there as well, be bold about the advice. So from a less academic perspective as well, like I, in 2018, 
I actually wanted advice from people in the corporate world and sports people around Ireland, influential people and, and people that have done really well in life. So I literally sent a cold email out to the most the leading performers all across Ireland, about 81% of them got back to me. I've done a, 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 a mathematical analysis on it. 81% of them got back to me. And some of them, some of the interviews, some of them have turned into my mentors and one in particular. So everyone knows Amy Huberman. She'd be one of the people I reached out. To. I got an interview with Amy and I remember she said something that just really jumps out at me. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. So like people are afraid of rejection, but you are already rejecting yourself if you don't ask because yeah. the answer is always no. So reach out to people. It's only by asking that you're going to give people a chance to, to be your mentor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, I like that line. It's good. Um, yeah, it's and I great. suppose... Brian, maybe just t- talk me through your journey and talk me through your story. Um, you know, I've read your book. I was blown away by it. And I'd really love to kind of get the essence of of your journey out to this podcast. Um, and one of the kind of first things that struck me was your experience, you know, as as a child and, you know, the, the kind of trauma that you went through. So maybe kind of starting from there, if you could kind of fill us in. Yeah, 100%. So so basically my my problems in life started from the moment I was born. So when I came out of my mother's womb, I had a condition known as intestinal malrotation, which literally means my guts, my intestines were twisted. So I was misdiagnosed. I wasn't eating. I, 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 my mom actually describes me as a little infant projectile vomiting on the walls. Like she says, it was like something from the exorcist. And she kept on bringing me back to the hospital and I was misdiagnosed, misdiagnosed until I was nearly dead. Um, I lost half my birth way she went into the hospital my mom says she remembers me just limping her arms she says something's so wrong here so she insisted on the doctors checking me out and they realised I lost half my birth way so they took it seriously and I was nearly dead I was rushed into emergency surgery what many people don't know and will be shocked by is that it was only in 1985 that the medical practice realized that infants needed an anesthetic. So they believe on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s, they believed that infants didn't experience pain like adults. So I was I went through a, a full operation uh, without a general anesthetic and that was for anybody pre-85. So I firmly believe I was primed for a life of anxiety. Like anxiety, I was... I, I was anxious all my childhood and it was all, all around bodily sensations. My, I f- afraid of my own heartbeat, afraid of my pulse, very anxious, very tense, always looking to jump out of my own skin. That's the best way I can describe it. And um, we moved around. I came from a very loving family, but it was an alcohol family as well. It was alcoholism in the family. And I was always worried about my mom and dad. They were drink, they drank, drove a lot. And I was always years of my memories is just looking out the window for hours waiting for my mom and dad to come home it's, it's a memory that still sticks with me because I, I was very I was highly aware and highly sensitive as a kid as well so around the age of six to nine I spent most of me evening hours waiting for my mom and dad to come home from the pub drunk and do you think that, that was do you think like you know I'm just imagining you waiting for your parents to come home was it that you were afraid they weren't going to come home or that they were because they were they were drinking do you know no afraid we're gonna die so it was it was this fear of death it was it was i was always i i i don't know where it came from i had this morbid fear of death that my mom and dad would die that my brothers would die that my family would die and loved ones would die so it was basically all around the fear of death and um yeah so so that so that's sort of 
enhanced my anxiety and I was just a very, very anxious kid. And then, as I mentioned, I was crazy about football, but then I got an injury when I was 14 years of age. And I remember all my friends were smoking cigarettes at the time and I was like, no way would I smoke a cigarette that will influence, will harm me potential football career. <laughs> but I must be getting curious about drugs at the time as well because everyone was doing drugs in my area. And I remember one of the lads, my friend Alan, saying, um, or the head buzz you get off that cigarette. And we were, we were, I never forget it, we were sitting on the dressing rooms of the football uh, of the football team, which is really ironic in itself. And I said, I wouldn't want get a head buzz, give it a little puff for that. Like, I'm not a smoker, but I'll try a little head buzz, you know? Mm. And I remember I just loved that head buzz. And within a couple of weeks, I was uh, smoking hash. Within a couple of months, I was messing with tablets. And I just, I, I was a very curious kid as well. And I was always willing to push boundaries and take chances. And then by the time we were puffing, sniffing the petrol, we were drinking, taking ears, taking acids. And that was really 15, 16 years of age. And then when I was 17, um, I wanted, I had this urge to try heroin. I just wanted, and I, in my head, I'll try it once because heroin's so dangerous. I don't want to be a junkie like the other addicts that I see or whatever like that. That was the, the thing I had in my head. And I tried heroin once. And in my book, as you know, I describe it. I have a whole chapter dedicated to my first night doing heroin. I call it Fallen in Love. And it was just literally, in comparison to me former self, it was literally like a soft, warm blanket just being wrapped around me soul. And it was like even the word, it was like heroin spoke to me that night. Keep me close. I will protect you. And I says, yeah, I'll be keeping you close. And I spent the next three years uh, doing heroin but no way would it be a real addict I was really trying to stay away from heroin doing it on a weekly basis and stuff like that thinking I had a secret I remember thinking I had this kind of secret that you can do heroin and not be a real addict if you, if you don't do it too much but it was it had me pulled in right from the very start I was mentally addicted from the very start and when I was 20 I had my first, uh, first big panic attack from taking drugs as well I was doing a lot of coke at the time as well and once I had that panic attack it sort of kicked up my levels of anxiety my generalised anxiety to a whole new level and I remember just making the decision where I'm going to have to do heroin because the doctor I went to a doctor he gave me Xanax or anxiety medication he gave me them for a week and took them away from me then says got me to read a book or something like that and I, I couldn't do my job I couldn't function with that level of anxiety and I remember just deciding I need to do heroin to curb this and I spent the next 15 years like getting deeper and deeper into addiction as a full-blown heroin addict and even just the the words that you use around heroin, which struck me in the book, but even as you're talking about there, this warm blanket, they're very affectionate terms. You know, it's it's nearly like, yeah. even though obviously looking back now, it, it was had such a negative impact on your life. But yes, you kind of describe it in kind of positive, positive terms. Yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting point. And I do, and in the, in the book, like I do say that heroin will take you to heaven, but it will also take you to hell and it will take you to hell very quickly. But when I think about it, it it's, it's, I still like, it's a forbidden fruit for me now. It, like I just, I, it's forbidden fruit for everybody. So specifically for me, the brain remembers, and like I just wouldn't get anything out of it anymore. But I've, I've removed anxiety. Doesn't live in my life anymore. I've a wonderful relationship with anxiety today. I can swat it aside if it comes near me. Actually, it doesn't affect me in the slightest. And I really, I, I never. The way I see it, I never got the anesthetic I needed as an infant. 
I was anxious my entire childhood and I I found that anesthetic at the age of 17. So really heroin was the was the anesthetic, the saviour, the, the soft warm blanket I was looking for for so long and it protected me during that time, but it soon took me to hell. But it's really interesting that I still talk about it in them terms. Like I've, I, I've done loads of drugs. I could, I, I haven't, I don't sit around people doing coke, but I could easily sit around people doing cocaine and I wouldn't be tempted. I, I've, I've sat in pubs for functions I don't drink but I've sat in pubs people drink it doesn't bother me any drug but there's no way could I sit around people doing heroin it has this pull towards me now I'll never do it again I've I don't I've no need to do it again but the pull of it is so strong and it's such a, the euphoric feeling that calmness that that nothingness that it gives you it just it, it does still have that pull for me and yeah it's definitely it's, it's, it's really interesting it was like I was in a relationship with heroin for all of that time and it's like yeah, a lost, a lost, a broken relationship for want of that word. Yeah, God. And like kind of the other thing that struck me was that throughout this whole time that you were heavily taking heroin, you had a steady job. You had a, you were going on ski holidays. Yeah. You know, you I had, seemed to have a nice life on the, from the yeah. outside looking in, which it, that surprised me. I don't know what I suppose just the, the juxtaposition of where you were in your in your life. And then from the outside, you seem to be coping very well. Yeah, from the outside um, is, is is the key point there as well, and and that was up to a, up to a point as well. But what most people don't realise is that like we have this stereotypical um, interpretation. I even said the word junkie. I don't, I don't call people junkie. I was using that in, in that language, but we have them ideas around junkie, zombie. Like if you think of a zombie. And that's that you start junkies are like a zombie. It's like you're, you're basically calling them someone that's dead, like a zombie is someone that's dead. So you're calling them dead inside. So these are the words and the language that we use around addicts and junkies and zombies and all this kind of thing. But that's a very stereotypical kind of thing. Like what I've, what I've learned and what I knew going, like I was a registered methadone user for 12 of them 15 years when I was addicted to heroin. Um, and you go into the methadone clinics, not all methadone clinics, some of them are a little bit crazier than others but like there was trades people going in there was lots of people like there was there's methadone clinics set up for people after five o'clock because they all work so many addicts work on a regular basis so I knew people and when I went back and done research in the methadone clinics the people work and normal people so there's a lot more addicts out there doing heroin that have functional normal lifestyles that than you would imagine but it does it, it brings it drags you down completely like I functioned for a long time but in, in the end I, I did stop functioning and like you know you spoke about because you were in the same job for I think 17 years or so it was it was a long time yeah. and then it kind of got to a point where they called you into a meeting and you came out and you were like I think that went grand and I suppose maybe talk to me how it didn't go grand it didn't go grand that's a funny one yeah so I was I was I, I'd gone way downhill at this stage I was losing my job for a long time and two guys in me, me met great friends of mine and man, the manager of the job uh, Wayne and Mick did, they, were, they were also the, the union reps as well so they were trying to protect me for years and they were, they were friends and they, they'd nearly hide me when, when the quality controls were when customers were coming in for quality audits of my job it'd be like hide Brian like they'd hide me like it got to that level yeah it was crazy but it got to the stage where other people were saying right seriously like what the hell was he how was he still got a job in here this is like a joke at this stage like I was just falling asleep constantly I was late I think I was late, like I think ninety something percent of the days, like of the of that year that I got sacked, and like sometimes by an hour, sometimes by two hours. The the funny thing was, 
a lot of people always ask, how did I keep the job for so long? So I was there for a long, long time and I was very technically minded in the job as well. So there were certain questions, even though I was strung out the bits and I was like in a very bad way physically, I still had the mental capacity. I still had the, te- the, the expertise in certain areas. So it started, it was a weird dynamic within the job as well. But it got to the stage where the job were looking to sack me. They brought me in for a meeting to keep me job. The union reps were all brought in as well. And at the end of the meeting, I went to Mick and Wayne. I said, that went all right, lads, didn't it? And Wayne just looks at me and says, Brian, you fell asleep in the meeting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it was like, Dead in the water, I was gone. I had no more excuses after that. I got great advice off the union. They said, tell him to go and not ever to walk back into that job. We might be able to get him a payout in the end if he goes to treatment and stuff. And that's where it all went. It went the, the start of my journey really started from there. Yeah, no, it's mad. And there was kind of, you know, before I get into, I suppose, you know, your your journey up and your, your treatment and then where you are today, one thing that struck me was you were always worried that you were going to get caught with the drugs as well. The, also, the, the other thing of like selling drugs, you know, so did you like at what point did you say, look, I have I think this is bad. I am a heroin addict. I, I really have a problem because a lot of the time you're kind of like, I only do it on a Saturday and, you know, it's fine. And I think you say you know, it took you until you were like 31 to actually be like, OK, yeah, maybe maybe I, I have I have an issue here. Yeah, it was fascinating. Like I, I often tell people that the book is not a book about addiction. It's a book about self-deception. I think fundamentally it's a book about self-deception. And I often, I think I use these words in the book, like I was a black belt in self-deception and I could tell myself any lie and take any action or I could take any action and cross any boundary by telling myself a lie and believing it. And that was the nature of my whole addiction. Like it started when I was younger that I have a secret. You can do heroin once a week and you're not a real addict. Then when I started taking heroin, on a regular basis on a daily basis it was I'm not a real addict like I go on holidays I have a job I'm not a real addict in inverted commas and that lasted for such a long time like I was obviously a registered user I was given urines once a week I was going to a clinic to get methadone every single day so I was obviously had addiction issues I was aware of the fact that I was addicted to, to drugs but I wasn't a real addict this was the whole thing the self-deception that kept me going and I was I was I wasn't a real addict and I was getting out of it even though he was in so long which was crazy and then then I sold drugs at a very early age as well to fund my drug habit as well but I wasn't a real drug dealer now I never sold drugs to make money and I'm not justifying that like I, I sold drugs to fund my habit but it was still selling drugs end of story I sold like big quantities of drugs to fund me habit as well but it was like I didn't see myself as a real drug dealer because I always justified what I was doing by some other way and addicts every, every any person in addiction is a master manipulator that, that's what they think but they manipulate themselves they don't manipulate other people it's self-deception it's delusion it's self-manipulation so that's really what I was doing and then when I finally believed I was and when I said I, said, I really do have a big problem I'm a real addict but then I was like, yep, I'm the best addict ever. Like that was literally what I talked to myself. I remember talking to my sister about that. Like I always have money. I always get drugs. I'm a brilliant addict. So it was a very self-delusional, very strange dynamic here as well, because when I got clean, 
I didn't have years of I'm no good. I'm I'm crap. I'm I'm a I, 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 I'm I'm a waste of space. I didn't have that language, that language, them them stories. Like I'm I'm very much into the stories we tell ourselves and the self talk, which which relates to a lot of my research as well. Like the stories we tell ourselves, language is a vehicle for emotion. So if you've been telling yourself that you're a waste of space for years and years and years, you're gonna feel like a waste of space and create a self identity out of that. So very strangely, when I got clean, I wasn't gonna be just. Uh, someone in recovery I was going to be the best addict in recovery ever and it got me into college that fundamental belief that I would do brilliant in college brought me through that very delusional very self-deceptive as well because I wasn't the best but it pushed me to work really really hard as well so there was advantages to that self-deception as well it's just being balanced with a bit of self-awareness that's come into my life as well so I suppose maybe talk to me about the night that was a turning point um, and then your kind of road to recovery and you know to take me back there so, yeah, so I was, a, a, as I explained, I was a functional addict for such a long time and it really did deteriorate in them last few years. But when I lost my job, that just, that changed everything. Like I, I had no way of paying, I, I'd worked up big debts at that stage. So I had no way of paying them debts. I had no way of more money coming in to fund me habits. Um, basically, I couldn't even sell drugs anymore because I looked so bad. I, I don't know whether you ever seen the picture of me before or after, Megan, have you? Mm, yeah. yeah, so there was, like, I looked I looked horrific at that stage. Like, physically, I looked terrible and just no one trusted me. I had no way of making money. So it was time for me to sink or swim, live or die. I do truly believe I was on death's door and I felt physically that I was about to die at that stage as well. It was just my body was giving up. And I decided to go, uh, to, I says, right, I'm going to try to get clean and go into a detox facility. So I tried to get into a detox facility and they told me that I couldn't get in because there was too many benzodiazepine in my system. So yeah, I was at risk of having a seizure. Now I could have gone to another detox facility to come off the benzos, but I would have had to wait eight weeks to get into that facility. So I just thought I'd be dead by then. Like it was something in me being just telling me you need to do this now. So I decided to do a, against against the clinic's recommendation. I decided to do a home detox on my own and to come off benzos really quick, which was very very dangerous in hindsight. So I did that, and then two days into that home detox, I described what, which was it wasn't only the most painful night of my life; it was also the most important night of my life. So I woke up on me sitting around the floor, blood everywhere. And what had happened was I did have a grand mal convulsive seizure, which is a benzo fit from coming off the benzos. So what happens when you have a convulsive seizure, which many people listening to this podcast will probably know, is that every neuron in your brain fires at the same time. It's like an electrical fire in your brain, a cascading effect of all the neurons firing. It's a grand mal seizure. So all of my muscles were convulsing. So what had actually happened to me, I drove me teeth, the convulsions drove me teeth through my tongue, through the center of my tongue. So it was a horrific experience. So that's where all the blood was coming from. So I was, I was, um, my poor brother, younger brother thought I was dead. He was, uh, he thought I was dead at the time. We were filming a TV documentary there a while ago. He broke down in tears. Like it still has a huge impact on him because he thought I was dead for a couple of minutes. And thankfully I wasn't. All of my family rallied around me that night and called an ambulance, rushed to hospital and, um, I don't remember much of that night, but I remember waking up in the hospital trolley several hours later that night. And I was emotionally, physically, and mentally broken. I really was. I just, uh, anxiety surging through my body. This, this just agitation of wanting to jump out my own skin, like going through the detox, like withdrawal is basically the opposite of what the drug gives you. So it was literally like a spring, taking the drug, taking the drug, taking the drug, and pushing the spring really to hard together. And then withdrawal is like the unleashing of that spring of all that anxiety coming back at you. And that's how I felt. I was just, I was just broken. I was really broken that, that night. 
And I was sitting on a, I'll never forget this memory. I was sitting on a hospital trolley and my legs dangling. I, I sort of pulled myself up onto the hospital trolley, trying to move, but I just had no strength. And with my legs dangling off the trolley, I remember my eyes just getting fixated on this red fire extinguisher. And I, it was a red fire extinguisher, but it didn't make sense to me that night. I remember just like tunnel vision, just sort of locked with lack of energy, just locked into this, looking at this fire extinguisher on the wall. And I remember just saying to myself, that's a fire extinguisher. And that's the colour red. And then I was trying to put the concept together. I was trying to make sense of reality and I, and I couldn't put it together. The, the way I can best describe it is like links of a chain that I knew went together in the past, but I didn't know how to put them together anymore. And I started looking around the room and it was like my verbal world didn't make sense anymore. Concepts and objects didn't make sense anymore. I couldn't put language together. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, that's brain damage. You're done. Game over. You're done. Game over. That's brain damage. Everything's done now. And I remember just waiting for this anxiety and these panic attacks that drove my entire addiction. I was waiting for them just to surge back through me and, and overwhelm me. But all, all of a sudden, I just remember just leaning back down on the trolley and saying, I, I give up. I'm, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping. This fight is over. I cannot fight this anymore. You win. I give up. And it was like this sense, I was still anxious in my body, but it was like this sense of peace came over my mind. And what I've since realized was like, I had a story throughout my whole addiction. I talk about self-talk a lot and the stories that we tell ourselves because the thoughts in our heads are primarily verbal. And we tell ourselves these stories. We might be critical of ourselves. We might have self-doubt. We might have these stories that we're procrastinators, we're anxious, we're warriors. And when we constantly tell ourselves these stories, we live out them stories. My story was, I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. And my whole life was built around trying to survive anxiety by taking heroin and medicating myself with different drugs and heroin, the primary drug. But it was like that night was like a crack in the shell of my ego, that sense of identity, which drove that story. And it gave me space to write a new story and allowed me to start to change my life. So I've, um, I, I, I went, um, I came home from the hospital. I did another couple of seizures. I did another couple of hospital visits. And I was really broken down physically and mentally in every every single way I could, like intense suffering. I really was. Then I went with, I got into the detox facility when Benzos were out my system. And then I was five weeks coming off opiates in the detox facility as well. And suddenly an energy was coming into my body in the in the weeks when 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 the drugs were coming out of my system. It was that's when I started reading about like spirituality, Eastern philosophy, psychology. And I started reading about things that was really, really interesting. I was fascinated by suffering and why I suffered, why why I was feeling a little bit better. And, and I, I was just, I was actually blown away by meditation, mindfulness. How had I never heard of these concepts before? And with this energy coming into my body, I will never forget my first day clean. It was the 8th of October, 2014. And we were on a detox, it was a farm. And I remember just, it was like the morning was just calling me outside. And there was something just wonderful about this morning. There was just this spark in the air. I can't describe it. And I walked out onto the farm and it was like, I, it was like, it was a beautiful October dew soaked morning, blue skies, sun coming up behind the tree line, the spindly October trees. It was gorgeous. And I remember just the dew drops in the grass. I remember looking at them and they were like diamonds. The mist in the air was just like nature was breathing on me. I'll never forget it. The, this fence, this this wet fence, a big meaty wet fence that I was mm -hmm. sitting on was just feeling that fence. It was just so much life in everything. So 
everything that was hollow just had this life inside of it. And what I've since come to realize was that I was nearly forced into the present moment by me suffering. I couldn't handle my mind anymore, my compulsive thinking, being tormented by anxiety. And what I what I realized after that, when I was doing a mindfulness meditation one day, that we were, it was a guided meditation and, and the person doing the meditation says, thoughts will come in, thoughts will come out. And I just had this realization wow, my mind is so quiet. I was like, my mind is so still. So I was like, what is that? What, what is this relationship between feeling so much energy and the mind going still? And then I realized a few weeks later that anxiety had left me. I wasn't feeling anxious anymore. So I was like, what's the relationship between thinking and anxiety, self-talk stories, and this relationship between all of these different things. So that's when this, it had already occurred that this intense curiosity to learn about this, why I suffered, why I didn't suffer anymore, how I could share this with other people, what was the relationship between self-talk, thinking, emotions, all of these concepts. I was deeply fascinated by these things. And it just set me off on a different adventure. You could say I became addicted to learning. I transformed those desires. I stuck me dopamine hooks into something else. You could say that. And I think that's a way of looking at people to recover from addiction. It's worked well for me. And there was only one place to start. And I'd done a degree in psychology in Minucci University. I jumped straight into that as soon as I could. And it was um, it was like back to back to what we were saying. Like I remember when I done the interview from Minucci University and I, I thought I was going to go in, I was going to blow them away with me ideas on spirituality and Eastern philosophy and stuff. And the guy doing the interview just says, I think you should do an access course, Brian, and come back next year. And it says, I don't think you'll be able to cope. And I remember a special Brian that wants to be the best ever again. That, that's what that meant, mad attitude kicking in. But it did save me at that time. And I was just like, I'm not here to cope. I'm not here to get through this. I'm here to be the best. I want to excel here. And he was sort of taken aback by my uh, boldness and my belief in myself. And he gave me an opportunity. And it was great because I never really looked back after that. And I, I just went from there. And I, I done really well in college with hard work. I got a scholarship, an IRC scholarship for Trinity and the Institute of Neuroscience for my master's and for my PhD. And now here I am in my final year of my PhD. So that, that was the journey there. So how long after you came out of treatment did you start your degree then? Um, I came, so I was in I was in a treatment centre down in Wexford in Ashery. So it was detox, then treatment. But they didn't give me a chance. They thought I was crazy. I was on this light, fluffy flower, talking about spirituality, talking about psychology, talking about learning. I was just so excited about life. But I think they thought that, they didn't know I had this profound shift in perspective and how could they in fairness? So they thought I was going to relapse as soon as I got out. So they advised me to go on to another treatment facility up in Navin. So I went there for a little bit of time, but I wanted to get started on life. And I came out of there at Christmas and then I applied for college in February, two months later, I applied for college. So I wanted to start college in September. So Minute was the only college I could have applied for to do a degree in psychology. And I started that September, basically 2014. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yes, it was. It was very quick turnaround. And you, you kind of, like you said there, you touched on it there, like it seems like you nearly became addicted then to, to learning. And, and you were talking about having a part-time job in while doing your degree. And like when you'd be driving around, you'd be trying to get every waking moment, you had to be learning something. And it had to be, and I mean, it obviously paid off because, you know, you were became top of your class and you won the best dissertation. But 
Yeah, talk to you about that because it seems nearly kind of like compulsive nearly. The kind of very much. Yeah, very much. And and for me as well, it wasn't all about academia. It started off like that, but I'm and even today it's not about academia for me. I want to really bring the academic academic learnings to life lessons and bring it to the lay community more so. So I'm fascinated by principles, values, uh, life lessons, tactics and habits for life. So really I I studied all of that stuff as well. And I suppose my story really changed. Like, so instead of saying I cannot cope with anxiety, I need heroin to survive. My story today is adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. So I, I use every challenge as an opportunity to grow. And that's something I did do. But it can be dangerous to an extent as well, because when do you stop? When do you stop learning? When it, One of my principles was take relentless and massive action. Like it wasn't take action. It was take relentless and massive action. So for me in the addiction, it wasn't like do drugs. It was do heroin and do as much of it as you can. So it's this like all or nothing kind of personality, which is good if it's channeled in the right direction. So yeah. it's, and I think awareness is the balance for that. So I've, I've a lot more balance in my life today, but at some stage it was dangerous and I was going all in. I was trying to be the best and I wasn't trying to beat other people. It's I, I tend to want to be better than I was yesterday. I compete against myself and I want to do well. And I've always been like that. But um, that sort of brought me stress back into my life. I lost that beautiful life feeling that I was gifted back in detox. And in 2015, I, I was getting a bit stressed and anxious again. And I started messing around with Valium and, uh, or not Valium, I started messing around with, um, with Solpidine when I had a flu. So I, I had what you could call a little mini relapse. And I remember in Minute University at the end of second year, I, I, I remember looking at the joint psychiatry as Minute University and thinking, wow, I don't see them like I did two years ago, that beautiful connection I had with nature seemed to have just gone and I lost it in unawareness so that absolutely blew me away and I was going to leave college at that stage I threatened to leave college even though I was top of my class I said nah this is too important that was too profound and college is, is, is driving me in the wrong direction here it's, it's making me more anxious and focusing too much on studies so it was at that stage when I developed what I call my program for life which is really about emotional and mental fitness and I prioritised that over everything else and not only did we towards your did I cope in torture? I mean, results actually got better because I focused on what was important and I really prioritized what was important in my life. So the addiction is still there to an extent, like this love of learning, but it's 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 tempered by this self-awareness and this very structured approach I have for my emotional health. Like the first thing I do every morning is my morning routine and me exercise. That comes first. That's my number one domino. And if I get that number one domino right, that knocks down all the other dominoes in my life. So I'm very, I I know where my priorities lie. And I will still be very addictive about that as well. I make sure I do that every single day. But it's having the awareness to balance that as well, I think is key. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I suppose this is a you know perfect opportunity now to talk about your research. So you're in your final year of your PhD and um, you're working in the Trinity Institute of Neuroscience. So, yeah, talk to me about your research, talk to me about the area and then I suppose what you've what you found and, and what your project's about. Yeah, so so there's a couple of a couple of threads of that. So my first published paper was actually my dissertation for my undergrad degree. So it was basically I, I was I, I wanted to to publish something. I, I it was based on my own life experiences. So when I got clean, I wanted more. Like I didn't just play golf. I played golf twelve times a day in the first few or twelve times a week a week. Sorry, in the first few months. And when I was talking to other people in addiction 
that were getting cleaned. He says, if anything felt good, they wanted more of it. So I was fascinated by this relationship between wanting more addiction and negative emotions. Like you want more, like if you feel bad, you, you go shop and retail therapy. If you feel bad, you're comforty. If you feel bad, you have a drink. If you feel bad, you have a drug and the more of it, the better. So my first um, thing was, it was, it was a, it's a language of emotion thinking emotions and and self-talk it's a, a theory called relational frame theory so i done a, a, an experiment on that look and i induced people into a negative mood positive mood and a neutral mood and what we found so we got great results on that and what we found when we induced people into a negative mood they wanted more than people in the neutral condition so like it made sense that it was a psychological uh, it was a neuropsychological assessment called the irap the uh, the implicit relational assessment procedure it's called and it's basically just an, an assessment of wanting more based on reaction time measures but what we found was basically that people that are negatively induced want more than people that are not negatively induced so a bad mood makes you want more of something so we linked it into materialism and stuff like that and i talked about it in terms of self-talk and the stories that we tell ourselves and how we feel them emotions so that has really even though I'm in the Institute of Neuroscience, that was behavioral psychology. So I've sort of brought that behavioral psychology into my neuroscience degree as well. So my, my primary degree um, for my PhD is looking at uh, variables that best predict successful abstinence after a mindfulness-based intervention. So we had people in the, in the Rutland Center that were through a five-week program for addiction. And after that program, we get them in an eight-week mindfulness-based relapse prevention. So it's a really high-level clinical intervention, mindfulness intervention. And what we wanted to see was um, what, like we were using the machine learning analysis to assess what best predicts successful abstinence. So it was really a great study that was going to inform policy because maybe, maybe mindfulness is great at reducing anxiety. Maybe mindfulness is great for reducing impulsivity, but it doesn't do anything with depression. So if you had a ceiling effect, there is no point in giving it to people with high depression because it's not going to do that, or low depression because it's not going to do that. Now, they're not the answers. They're hypothetical answers there. Um, so that's what we were really looking at. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, COVID-19 has put a big halt to the primary study in the Rutland Centre. We had to stop you know, at the after the third wave. So we did another, another couple of waves. So it's underpowered now. And we can only look at trends, which is a bit of a shame because we can't, we can't even finish that off now, which is a bit of a shame. So we were looking at wanting more impulsivity, depression, stress, levels of mindfulness, what best predicts that. But we found a huge relationship in the trends. Now it's not statistic, it's not power sufficiently powered, mm. but there's huge trends towards craving wanting more and levels of mindfulness. So what I'm doing now as a separate study, we're doing it, I'm in the middle of it right now. It's a big online study. We're going to try to get a sample size, maybe three or four thousand, an online study. And we're going to look at the relationship. It's going to be only it's only going to be cross-sectional and um, maybe do a mediation analysis or structural equation modeling and look at the models, look at the effects within and the relationships between the variables. But we're going to look at the relationship between mindfulness, alcohol misuse, craving and wanting more and impulsivity as well and just look at the dynamics in that relationship because for me master's research as well and what we found was that there was a huge relationship between drinking wanting to drink more 
and levels of mindfulness then mediate the relationship between drinking and motives to drink. So impulsivity is basically, people think of impulsivity, but in psychology circles, it's a very multifaceted kind of a concept. So you can have motor impulsivity, choice impulsivity, trait impulsivity. So we specifically looked at trait impulsivity and two elements of trait impulsivity are negative urgency and positive urgency. So positive urgency is basically impulsivity when you're feeling positive. So I feel great. Let's go have a drink. Mm. Negative urgency is acting impulsively when you feel crap. So I feel stressed. Let's go have a drink. So we're really interested in the relationship between alcohol misuse, different levels of uh, impulsivity, and then mindfulness as well, and then motives to drink as well. And we found a lovely relationship that people that were motivated to drink for enhancement, positive urgency, mediate that relationship so if they if they felt great and they were impulsive it was done to enhance sense of self that's why it was done whereas the opposing one was that if people drink to cope with life that mediated the relationship between alcohol misuse and negative urgency drinking to because they feel bad so we got a lovely relationship there so we're going to look in them variables well in the big online study as well so there's a lot of moving parts in the PhD at the moment and um, COVID-19 obviously wasn't the ideal scenario, but it's like, again, it's, I went back on my life story, like adversity doesn't stop me, it fuels my ability to thrive. So I just tell myself that and say, lean in and how can you do it better? So it's going great. Be really, I'm fascinated. I'm really, really fascinated by this relationship between craving and wanting more in addiction because I think this is something that there's no research on this and it's something I found through my own life experiences and it's something I found through dealing with other addicts. So to get this, to, to get actual data on this from my previous study is really, really interesting. So it's it's very exciting to see where this research goes. Yeah, no, definitely. And mindfulness, I, I think you, you speak about how it can affect a part of the brain called the amygdala. So, you know, maybe yeah. talk to you about that. And also, I'm interested, so, so that's one question, but I'm also interested in how you found the transition from psychology to neuroscience. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think psychology is a very young science. And for me, psychology isn't psychology. It's have behavioral psychology. So I first became obsessed with behavioral psychology and from a Skinner perspective, like re- re- reward, operant condition and reward and punishment and behavior. And then relational frame theory, which is um, which is it's it's really a behavioral theory of language. So it's looking at variable behavior and how that's reinforced and stuff like that as well. So they were really two elements. I would really take them as two separate disciplines. I, I would say in a hundred years there won't be psychology. There will just be lots of multi, lots of disciplines that are being pulled apart. And for me neuroscience is just a part of psychology it's just one it's one of the chapters that we are one of the sections that we learned about and you can go into great depth in neuroscience when i go into the institute of neuroscience i would say it's less about neuroscience and more about advanced statistics which is interesting again because it's functional fmri it's eeg and when you pull them apart you're really looking at advanced statistical analysis i'm not a fan of advanced statistical analysis i'm not a fan of coding either like it's not my cup of tea i like bringing it to the real world and that's why I like functional and behavioral psychology. I did like to look at them as well. So when I went to the Institute of Neuroscience, the PhD I want to do, I, I didn't want to do one on heavy neuroscience, certainly didn't want to do one on advanced statistical analysis. So I did do a bit of machine learning and I looked at that, but I really,
really wanted to do more clinical stuff like the mindfulness-based intervention. So that was really, I didn't really go deep into that. But at the same time, I teach the neuroscience of addiction in Trinity and I teach the neuroscience of mindfulness in UCD. So I'm very much embedded in the, the theory behind neuroscience, but I don't go, in, go into the depth of the methodology and the research behind it. I would stay in more primary uh, psych- psychological circles. But um, I, I, think, I think it's very important to have multiple viewpoints as well because I, I love the philosophy of science. I was obsessed with the philosophy of science and I found that some different areas of psychology would have different uh, world views on, on, on that as well. So like neuroscience takes a mechanistic approach. That's their philosophical approach to science. Whereas functional psychology took a functional approach was called pragmatism. So it's like successful work and then they ignore the brain and cognitive psychology. They say it's a black box. It's only between stimulus and response. That's all we can know. But I didn't really like that. I, I don't like that this different disciplines. I like a multidisciplinary approach. So I like to look at it from all different perspectives because we can't deny the brand. And for me, that's what I'm really trying to do. Like a lot of the work I do, and I, I like to write blogs and digestible science pieces about this stuff. And I'm trying to merge them two approaches in one. So um, basically a lot of the work I do as well, I do self courses on this as well, like to help people with their own mental health. And I bring in the self-talk, I bring in the brain. And basically for me, like if something is triggered in the environments, let's say it might be like the COVID-19, something on the news, environmental trigger, it's bad, bad news. And if that goes into the brain, so basically what happens is it goes in your eyes or your ears, the visual cortex, the auditory cortex, that sends a signal to the thalamus. That's an area of the brain. It's like the relay station of the brain. That sends a really quick signal to your amygdala, the fear center of the brain to prep you for fight and flight in case you need to respond really, really quickly. When we lived in the wild, we really needed to respond really, really quickly. But our bodies don't know we're living in cities and we have smartphones. Mm-hmm. We haven't evolved to that level yet. So that sends the stress response really, really quickly down to the amygdala. In the meantime, it sends a signal up to the cortex to appraise that information. And then that kills the amygdala system down if you appraise that in the right way. But what I find today is like we're still working off that same um, biological machinery that served us so well when we lived in caves. But we're not living in caves and jungles anymore. We're living in cities. We're living in houses with smartphones and social media. So our amygdala is constantly being bombarded and activated by all of these stimuli. And it doesn't even have to be external stimuli. You could be watching COVID-19, but then you could be lying in your bed later on that night and you could be triggering your amygdala yourself with memories and thoughts and projections of what's going to be and what might be. Mm. And that's where anxiety lives when thinking about the future so it's like a cortisol drip I often think of it as like a tap just going drip 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 dripping into your brain dripping into your system activating your immune system or hurting your immune system and for me I love bringing science into that level that you can think about the environment the reality of what's going on now and how it impacts our bodies and that's why I like to think about it from a from, from a multidisciplinary way because I think if we think in a, in, a, in, a, in a unidisciplinary way, we're not getting the whole aspect of reality. We need to think multidisciplinary because that's where reality is. It's in multiple disciplines. So I think it's really important to do that. And I think the amygdala is very important in terms of mindfulness because there's research out there that shows that you actually decrease the size, the physical size of your amygdala. You decrease the, if the function in the amygdala, the fear center of your brain by practicing mindfulness. So this, the, the research out there is really fascinating. It's young. The research is young. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying this happens. And it's very hard to do control experiments on it as well because of randomized control trials and money and stuff like that as well. But the research is pointing in great directions that the amygdala is something that's down-regulated by the cortex and then just actually altered 
straight away by mindfulness-based interventions. So that's that's the area. And, and I'd say today, like, I, I, I don't even know if I can worry anymore. Like, I used to struggle horrifically with anxiety. I don't get anxious anymore. Like, I go on radio shows. At the start, I was really afraid of, like, public speaking, Zoom calls, all of this kind of stuff years ago. I wouldn't even do a Skype call. And now it's just come second nature to me. And things that should make me anxious and make me worry, I observe them and I just observe them and watch them and let them go. So it's like, it actually feels like my amygdala is just cooled down. Like nothing really phases me in stuff that should phase me anymore. So I can actually feel it as if I've changed my brain. And obviously, I don't know if you've seen the scans. I recently released an article which is uh, researching. I, I got my brain scanned when I was in detox. Luckily enough, I was in a study. And I was in a study by, by, with a, a, a woman called Johanne Ivers. She's a professor in Trinity now. And she said to me while I was in detox, she's Brian, she's a very sharp mind. And that cued me. I said, oh, maybe I could go back to college. And mm-hmm. it's crazy. So Johanna actually got me to teach on in the addiction course in, in uh, Trinity College as well. So a little roundabout there. But true scans of my brain now and then, we found huge changes in my brain. And what we found as well in the, in the new scan from 2018, I have a chronological age. I, in that scan, I had a chronological age of a person 39 years of age, but I had a brain predicted age based on the density of my gray matter in my brain of a 29-year-old. So I literally reduced the age of my brain by 10 years, which predicts a mortality rate. Uh, dementia, cognitive decline, physical health. So it's crazy. And I'm not saying mindfulness was was the all, the, the, everything about that. Like I stopped doing drugs, nutrition, exercise, lots of things changed. But mindfulness and more to the point, present moment awareness is the huge driver that underpins all of them changes, I believe anyway. Yeah, no, and it's it, it's a fascinating area. And even me, when I was reading your book and hearing your story, I don't practice mindfulness. I didn't. I don't know that much about it, you know. So it was really interesting. And a lot of the kind of philosophies that you talked about, I was kind of like, maybe I should, you know, a- adapt them and and maybe bring them into my own life. And I think I know you you have your um course that you're running at the minute. So yeah, how is yeah. that going? It's going amazingly well. The feedback I'm getting is incredible. So it's basically called Master Your Self-Talk. Self-talk being the stories we tell ourselves and our thoughts and our thinking. Like most people, a lot of people really struggle. They're, they're worrying all the time. But it's that inner critic as well. People have this inner critic like and self-doubt. And these are the stories we tell ourselves. And if you have this negative self-talk, and language is a vehicle for emotion. Like that's the biggest thing, that biggest realization for me. We are the stories we tell ourselves and believe and emotions travel through them stories and travel through that language. So if you have negative self-talk all the time, the emotions are going to travel through that as well. So this course is really about the basics of self-talk. Then it goes into the science of self-talk. Then it got this fraternity goes into awareness, like becoming aware of your self-talk and how it's having an impact on your life. And that's really the catalyst for change right there. Then the fourth week draws on a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. It shows how to change your self-talk, change how you think to change your life. But it's the, it's, it's getting phenomenal testimonials. Like it's really going well. And it's just people saying that it's, it's changing our life, which is great. I, I, I had a woman on the other day who bought it for her husband. And she says her husband sort of always thought that this stuff was all BS. Like it's all, <laughs> it doesn't work. And she says that she sat down with him for two hours the other day and her husband couldn't shut up talking about all the good stuff that she says, like spirituality, awareness, self-talk, all this, uh, this stuff that he thought was all BS. So it's great to get that feedback. See, it's actually making a difference in people's relationships and people's lives. So it's really, it's great. And it's, 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 yeah, it's great to see that happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of another question I do tend to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is with your job right now and your career in academia, 
looking at it kind of as a whole, what do you love most about it? What do you love most about what you do? And then what frustrates you or what do you find stressful? In academia? Well, I'll tell you one thing, and it doesn't go down well with everyone in Trinity, and especially the people in admin. But I, And this is no joke. And I, 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 I don't, I've, I have a very carefree life. I don't take life that seriously. Like I think it's an Oscar Wilde quote, life is too important to be taken seriously. But I, I haven't had many stressors in recovery because of me attitude towards life and the practices that I put in. But the administration system in Trinity College has probably been the biggest problem for me in my whole recovery from heroin addiction. Like, that's a crazy thing to say. It's crazy. It's onion layers of onion layers of onion layers. And I'm in the middle of trying to register for next year. And it's like, I don't know. It's just crazy. Like, <laughs> um, So that has probably been the biggest stressor, the biggest problem for me. Um, what what I don't like, I, I I think academia is academia is great, and I love the peer review system, and I love how it works, and it's standing on the shoulders of giants, and all of that stuff kind of works. But I, it, it bothers me, especially in psychology, the replication crisis. Everyone's using novelty, and I, I I I'm part of that problem as well. I, I'm looking at novel studies as well, but there's no there's not enough replication going on in science, especially in psychology. There's too many novel statistical methods being used, too many novel research methods being used, and there's a lack of replication there as well. And I think like I I done I done structural equation modeling for my master's uh, research and. Like I, I got lots of help with that, but it probably would have taken me a year to actually learn the fundamentals of that statistical analysis. And then it got rejected in other papers. So I, I just think, I think the system is a, is a bit crazy. It gets you to delve in too deep into some specific areas. And I think it should be more multidisciplinary. So less on the details and more multidisciplinary because, and that's what I love about, and not so much what I love about academia, what I've loved that I've taken from academia that I've been able to impact part my own multidisciplinary approach on that so i'm bringing mindfulness i'm bringing addiction i'm bringing impulsivity and i'm bringing stuff that can be brought into the lay world now i know there's other research that sort of stays away from the experimental stuff but i think the area that i'm in should take a leaf out of the book of business models uh, social care models and, and look make it more real world at the same time, you do need both both entities going on at the same time. But that that would be that would be the 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 thing that I have I would have sort of an issue with. But the replication stuff is a is a big issue. And what I love, I love I love I love the whole writing process and I love I love the whole peer review process and I love the way the, the feedback that you get. I really do love that and the way um, everybody gives critical critique. Like the biggest skill I've gotten from um, academia is this ability to cr- for critically think and and to accept constructive feedback. I'm always I even call it negative feedback. Give me negative feedback. Yeah. That's where learning is. Like that's where the learning is. So I take it I take it on, on, on the chin, and I've I think academia has given me that tool. So that's one thing that I love about academia. But it's um yeah it's interesting. I would probably. I, I I would say when once I uh, not what I would say like once I finish my PhD I'll be stepping away from academia as a fact definitely but it will always keep me toes within academia within the science arena as well but I think what needs to happen I think life needs to speak to academia more and academia needs to speak to life more because I do think there's a big impasse right there. And I'd often say to myself, like um, in academia, like what would Google do? What, what what would these businesses do? They would do it very differently because it seems to be very messy from my perspective, the way the grants are done, the way the admin is done. And there just seems to be too many barriers that that isn't isn't good for time. There's a lot of waste of time within academia. Because I know students that are doing like put 80 hours a week into their PhDs 
and crazy stress, crazy anxieties going on. And they really haven't got the good life skills. And these are, these are students that are doing psychology as well. Like they haven't got these life skills to take a step back and be aware. And I just think it could be done a lot better with the mental health of the students in mind, because I think there's an awful lot of wasted time and an awful lot of it, it could be done a lot more cleaner and a lot better. And that would be my big issue with academia. And probably one of the reasons why I'm stepping out of it. I don't see it, I don't see it as very good in terms of utilizing time. And do you think, you know, because I know you're near the end of your PhD, like, are you stressed? Are you worried at all about, you know, the big thesis that's looming ahead? Or how do you view that? Um, I'm not. And it's because I've been very strategic about my PhD as well, I suppose. Um, it's going to be a huge year writing up the thesis. And I've done a bit of work on that already. I have a huge analysis. COVID-19 messed up from my primary study. So that's going to be a problem. And I have a new big study coming up. But I'm just going to put, I, I think I, I wrote my book in four months. So I'm very good at putting my head down and getting focused. And I will do the same with my thesis as well. But I suppose I don't get stressed. And I think one thing I do very well is I don't procrastinate. So I just jump straight into things. So when I do the work, I will do the work. I'm just not a procrastinator. It's not me. And it's the principles and the systems that are using me on life that has helped me to do that. So, um, and I've also, I'm also going to be drawing on, like, I, I wasn't one to just bounce into different models and different analysis and different research methods. So I, I, I was smart about it in that terms that I'm just not going to be a puppet for other people as well. So it says, no, this is the way I want to do it. So I didn't, I wasn't a puppet for someone else and just done what I was told to do. Like, because at first, I, if, I, if I just said yes to everything, I'd have been coding for two years. I says, coding's not for me, I'm doing something else. So I, I actually went, I, I rejected me IRC. So I rejected me, I got an RC three year for my PhD for 76,000. And I initially rejected it on the basis that the, that the project didn't inspire me. So I actually says, look, I can't do that. I need to do something that inspires me. And then I got the opportunity to do something that inspired me with the scholarship as well. So it worked out really well from that perspective. Mm. And it had to be something that inspired me. And that makes it easy. Look, I'm looking forward to doing my thesis. But if I'd done that code and then I was doing something on a, project, a topic that I didn't like, well, my thesis would be a problem because I would be procrastinating. So I think the lesson here that I'm really trying to say to grab it in a nutshell is do something that lights you up and it's not going to be work. It's going to be it's going to be what you enjoy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think a lot of kind of people I talk to in academia, whether they're planning on staying in academia or like yourself stepping away, you wouldn't really be in it and you wouldn't have stuck this long unless you loved it, you know? This is it. This is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that advice would be more for people that are in the early doors to academia. Like I see people coming in fresh, first year PhDs, and they tend to be just jumping into areas that they don't even know where they're jumping into. Never mind something that lights them up from the inside. So do something that as much as you can, direct yourself towards something that really lights that fire in the belly. What do your family think of, you know, how far you've come and, you know, where you are today in comparison to, I suppose, 2013? Yeah, they're, they're really proud. They're really proud, especially my mom and dad. Like, they're super proud. But there was a lot of hurt caused there. Like, even, like, we, we didn't get into the darkness of the book. Like, we talked about drug dealing in a, in a, in a joke. Not in a joke, why it's not joking, why it's horrible. I, I brought my mom and my sister on drug deals unknowingly because just to ask them for a lift. Like, there was some really dark moments in that. And um, there's still anger there, like, but like, we got on great, but there is still residual emotional stuff there. So they're very proud, but it's going to be a long process before all of that comes in. Like, if, like there's a lot of darkness in my story as well, like years and years and years of darkness and pain and problems that I cause for other people. So they're very proud, but it's a, it's a process, I'd say. 
Yeah. And I, and I do remember you saying that after you, I think the detox, you kind of wrote a letter to everyone and you're, yeah. you wrote a letter to your sister and you were like, you know, you need to do this to change your life. And she didn't take that well, you know, because she did not take it. Why, why would she? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you think about it, when you think about it, yeah, like 15 years of chronic heroin addiction and a month of detox and I write a letter to tell them how to change their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I know That's the, the delusion. That's the delusion in a nutshell <laughs> for you right there. <laughs> so I suppose, Brian, my last question for you, um, which I ask everyone is, if you weren't doing your PhD right now, and if, if this wasn't kind of where your life had ended up, what do you think you would be doing? And I know that might be a hard question to answer. It's very easy for me, actually. So, so I, I'm, I'm going to talk about this in terms of post-addiction. So there was two ways my life was going to go, academia and learning, or else I was going to go to Tibet and be a monk for <laughs> the rest of my life. And I was so, so close, like so close. I literally just wanted to dive so deep into spirituality in an addictive kind of way, which is very paradoxical at, at the same time as well as striving to be the, be- the best monk ever. Like God knows <laughs> what it would have been like, you know, crazy when I think about it. But I was literally wanted to go to Tibet and Nepal and, and, and meditate because I was getting huge. I was getting huge feelings and, and blissful feelings out of just this stillness and this presence and I do think I've lost it to an extent I think being in academia and being in the corporate arena and doing all these talks and online courses I'm getting dragged back into the social world but I have a lot more awareness around as well I, I have my morning routine which keeps me grounded but definitely and I, I wouldn't be surprised in 10-15 years time when I do all the courses and if I'm successful in this area of life after academia that I'll go back down that spiritual it will, it will always be it's always there for me and whether I'll go to a temple and live out in the years, I don't think so. But a more meditative, quieter life living out in the country might suit. So that's that's very much where I'd be, I'd say. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good answer. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, Brian, thank you so much again for, for coming on and chatting to me. It's It's been great. Cheers. I had an absolute ball, Megan. It was very, very different, which was brilliant. Another podcast. I really enjoyed it. Super. <laughs> So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.